Hey folks, if you're listening to the show today for the first time, you should know that this is not a normal episode. Instead, this is the first of two special epilogue episodes for the close of the first season. Today, we welcome Dr. Melissa Lane, author of the book The Birth of Politics. Reading this book was actually the final straw in convincing me to start the show, and it is a pleasure to now welcome Dr. Lane to tie the season off. In The Birth of Politics, Dr. Lane takes eight ideas central to society today, things like justice, democracy, sovereignty, and explores what they meant to the Greek and Roman world, what they mean to us today, and why they still matter. I think you will enjoy our conversation. We start by focusing on Athens and how justice played a role in their city, both on an individual and a societal level, before zooming out a bit and taking a look at how Athens interacted with the world around it, and, finally, what it means to us today. I hope you enjoy the show. In the end, it's our ideals, our values, that built America. From the crew of Apollo 8. Values that allowed us to forge a nation. We close with good night. To me, the flag has been more than just merely an inspiration. Good luck. I am not a perfect servant. I am a public servant. And God bless all of you. They have chosen to risk death rather than slavery all of you on the good earth and therein lies the road to war i'm very pleased to welcome a guest to the show today melissa lane is currently a professor of politics at princeton and a previous senior fellow at cambridge where she taught ethics she's written several articles for the new york times and numerous books including eco republic and most recently the birth of politics melissa lane welcome to the show thank you it's a pleasure to be here So my wife actually bought me The Birth of Politics when I was already reading a few things about Greece and politics in general, and it was the final straw that convinced me to start this show so I could keep exploring these ideas and the stories that shaped them. So obviously I enjoy it, but I wanted to ask, why these ideas? You have numerous books and articles, and a lot of them are centered around Greece. After 2,000 years of political thought, aren't these things outdated? Thank you. It's an important question, and I would never say that Greek ideas are the only important ideas for thinking about politics or that there haven't been significant changes. But I do think that actually it's remarkable the extent to which our vocabulary still bears impresses of Greek words. Institutions that we have are in some ways comparable, although often in important ways different to Greek politics. And traditions of thought, not only um, in what we sometimes describe as the West, but very widely also in Islamic thought in as far as Greek influence reached, which was very far across Asia at different points. Um, there have been people thinking about these ideas and engaging with them. So for all those reasons, I think it's worth our thinking about these ideas in their original context. Although, again, that isn't to say that the conversation should end and with them there. Sure. So it's a good building block. Yeah. Yeah. As a guy that does a history show, I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) But to get us started, I wanted to first get an idea about how Athens would have thought about justice. If we compare it to here in the United States, I think there are a few key values that we really tend to focus on with our national identity. So for instance, liberty or personal freedom will even frame our arguments or how we talk about controversial things such as gun control or abortion. Both of those are often talked about as it pertains to personal freedom or liberty. So back to Greece, based on their poems and plays, it seems for Athens, justice may have been one of the key touchstones of their society. Is this something that Athens would have consciously thought about? Would they have been aware of this as justice being part of their self-identity? 
Yes, I think not only Athens, but classical Greek um, writers more generally um, really build on a foundation of seeing justice as the basis of what it is to even have a political community or a political society. So they have many stories just as later and other authors have had of the kind of emergence of, of civilization out of as it were, a kind of state of nature or out of a kind of animal kingdom-like approach to human interaction and justice and often also um, reverence or awe, um, so towards the divine, those two are often paired as central to establishing a kind of meaningful political order. And, and I think, crucially, a political order that everyone would feel that they have a stake in. So I love a passage in Hesiod, who's um, an earlier poet, comparable, broadly speaking, to Homer, who writes that justice is what makes the difference between a hawk just devouring a nightingale, if the hawk feels like doing that, to a political community in which the poorer and more vulnerable can still live on some kind of fair terms with the wealthier and and more powerful. And I think those ideas are also very much central to um, Athenian politics in particular as, as that unfolds. So as Hesiod would have said, then without justice, you really can't have any society at all. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think that's essentially the idea. That's right. Well, something else Hesiod talked about was the emphasis on the strong versus the weak. And it's also been one of the themes of the first season so far. So in the beginning, as we would expect, the poor citizens of Athens were really in a very fragile position. From the earliest reforms of Athens, such as Solon, this fragile position was one of the first things that was addressed. Why was the position of the poor so fragile, and how did these reforms go about fixing it? Well, I think one has to imagine that, you know, in many political contexts, you know, around the world, throughout history, the poor are vulnerable. Um, They can be vulnerable in specific kinds of ways, and Athens at the time that Solon came into power in the early um, 6th century, that in particular meant that the poor were subject to a kind of debt slavery. So if they became so poor that they could no longer pay their debts, they could be subjected to forced labor um, until those debts could be cleared. It's not the kind of chattel slavery that we're familiar with um, in the Americas. It's not uh, race racialized or made a condition of a whole caste at birth, but it's still a position to which poor sub, poor citizens were were vulnerable and subject. And so, one of the crucial reforms that Solon makes is to abolish that possibility of debt slavery, and that gives the poor a sense of security that they can participate in their political community, and they're not subject in a way to being kind of thrust out of it or thrust under the private power of, of, a, of an individual rich person who can bankrupt them and then um, take advantage of them. So, it, you know, it's essentially a, a condition of society in which there is not the possibility of bankruptcy in a legal sense in which you gain protections through declaring bankruptcy, but rather it was where bankruptcy, as you might think of it, being unable to pay your debts just made you completely subject to forms of private power. Okay. And so it seems kind of hopeful then that if you went into slavery through this route, you could at least pay it off and get out of it. But at the same time, you're still essentially using your physical body as collateral. Right. It's, it's, the, it's the sort of 
loss of the kind of personal freedom that would, you know, enable you to to earn money for yourself. Instead, you're having to use your body um, in order to um, pay pay off your debts and satisfy your creditors. So when Solon first went about to try to change these things and started making his reforms, one of the first things he did was to rank the citizens based on wealth and establish a system that way. And to the modern mind, that seems extremely unjust to rank all the citizens based on how much wealth they have. How was that an improvement? Did that improve the chances of social mobility? So it's not so much that it improved the chances of social mobility, but the crucial thing was that he gave the very poorest class a defined role within the political system and within the political community. So it's true that it wasn't the same role as the wealthy had, but nevertheless, the poor had a role. And in particular, the roles that they had were to be able to participate in choosing the office holders and in holding them to account. And Athens in the forefront, but also other Greek city-states developed very stringent and demanding systems of accountability so that officials had to literally render their accounts at the end of their term of office. In Athens, in its most developed form, there were two different boards that were involved in scrutinizing first the financial accounts and then any other actions that the office holders had taken. And then they could be subject to prosecution of various kinds and fines, exile, or even death if they were found to have seriously abused their power. And ordinary citizens could play a role in those systems. Actually, I said Athens pioneered those. They didn't pioneer them probably in chronological terms, but they took them to their most extensive and developed form. So in a sense, what Solon was saying was the poorest citizens in in his system, as we understand it, were not eligible to hold the offices, but they did have this other kind of power over the office holders, crucially being able to select them and to hold them to account. And so that's a different kind of power, but it's a very significant one. And so in that sense, that was a real innovation and a step forward in including the poor in a meaningful way um, in politics. Sure. That was one of the interesting points of your book, I thought, was that how it makes a separation between who actually is in power versus the people that are able to control that power and punish them if they don't do a good job, which the Athenian Assembly would practice from time to time. Right, exactly. And I think that's a really important point. I mean, as I see it, this is uh, still work that, you know, I'm sort of developing and, and, and defending. But I think that if you think about, you know, the traditional way of thinking about political power, it's who is in office, you know, so, and even the Greek language reflects that. So if one person is in office, it's a monarchy, archy being derived from the Greek word arche for political office. If it's several people who are in office or a group of people, that's an oligarchy. A few people are in office. But democracy, demokratia, is formed on a different route. And one way of thinking about that is that it precisely marks that difference, as I think of it. We're not only saying the only people in office who have power are the office holders. We're saying it's also the people who control the office holders. Now, it should be said that another important thing that the Athenian democracy develops is a system where many offices, particularly the um, less high offices, are filled by lot. And eventually, at least, it seems that 
any citizen could fill them, however poor they were. So that is another important dimension of democracy. It's not only controlling the highest office holders, but also filling many of the other offices. But but I still think that we've not emphasized the role of controlling power and holding it accountable enough and the the sense in which that too was a was a distinctive innovation and development in Greek politics and in a in a special way in Athens, not only lottery, which is what has tended to capture the modern imagination when we think about Athenian democracy. Sure. Yeah, I know it's an interesting separation of power, and I want to get more into the difference between election and lottery in a little bit. But uh, keep focus on the assembly for just a little bit longer here. So it was clearly very successful in making the common person in a position of power, of giving them power in the political system. We have the Council of 500, which kind of set the agenda for the assembly. And then the assembly itself, though, seemed to be able to make a lot of knee-jerk reactions and sanction laws on the spot in the heat of the moment. We see this we see examples of this when they make Cleon a general, and then later when they execute their generals towards the end of the Peloponnesian War for not rescuing men left in the water after a battle. And so we see these knee-jerk reactions by the assembly. So what were the actual limits on their power? Once something was brought to them, it seems they had almost the ability to do whatever they want with it. Well, that's broadly speaking true. So it's important to say that you know, crucial decisions of war and peace, crucial decisions of state policy generally were made by the assembly. I think actually it's those decisions which were important. They didn't always take the form of laws per se. I mean, there's a distinction between laws and decrees, which becomes important. So actually, I think often our modern system makes us think the most important thing that a as a legislative body does is to make law, and then we map that onto the Athenian Assembly. But the Athenian Assembly, as you say, had a lot of powers that go beyond making law. They they made a lot of decisions, um, and they made them often in real time, as it were. You know, how should we fight this battle, or how should we respond to this threat? You know, having said that, while you cited, um, you know, there are examples that are traditional examples of the, the assembly making really, as we see it, bad or hasty decisions. There are actually rather few of those examples when you think that the heyday of classical Athens was, you know, just about two centuries. Um, it, it's the same handful of examples that people keep going back to again and again. And then in the later history of political thought, were often used to bash the reputation and the model of, of Athenian democracy. But actually, you know, I think on the whole, I mean, every system of government has its failures and its bad decisions, you know. And, and of course, there were sort of maybe systematic failings that their system was was subject to. They were very preoccupied with the powers of rhetoric and how those might be abused or could be used to make the weaker side seem the stronger. That's a kind of trope that becomes a real concern for the Athenians because their system relies on people making speeches on two sides and then a vote on the question. But I don't know that I think that it's, you know, on balance so clearly a worse system than our own systems or any other systems. It's not, I don't think those examples show that. No, I agree with that. I think it's a very important distinction to point out that these only happen a few times. We say that in some of the later episodes, because really, if it was the culture of Athens to exercise this type of judgment, these examples wouldn't stand out so much because they'd be lost in a sea of other examples like them. Yeah. But one of the interesting things that you say about the assembly is that 
they had this system of using procedure and organization and place of law. I mean, they were they were very, very active during the peak. They met about 40 times a year. And so if they have this much power, and granted, they do have a great track record, but if they had this much power and they were meeting so often and they had very little checks on their own power, you point out that what separated this very active Athenian government from simple mob law was not the passing of laws so much as it was to limit their power, or not limit their power, but to have strict organization and procedure. Can you explain that a little bit? How does organization and procedure help the Athenians be steered in the right direction? You know, I think that's a familiar idea for any any sort of parliamentary procedure, you know, any organization that's governed by bylaws or, you know, anything like that. If you have a kind of system, then you have, you know, you have sort of time in some time sometimes built into that procedure you have so as you said the council prepared the agenda for the assembly so that could be a check now sometimes the council itself would get carried away that occasionally happened as in the case of trying the generals um, who were thought to have abandoned the dead after this battle but in general you know procedure is is sort of the form through which we organize power in a recognizable and intelligible way. And and so, again, I think it's important that, you know, Athens didn't have the fully developed uh, judicial precedents, for example, binding judicial precedents that we have. They don't have professional judges or professional prosecutors for the most part, but they do have, you know, recognizable duties of office. Um, and those offices then intermesh in a defined set of ways. And that means that it's not just mob rule, you know, it's um, even though the whole male citizen body was entitled to attend the assembly and to vote, they could only do so in a particular format. Sure. So once once the choice came down to them, they had a very open say, but they had to wait for the choice to come down to them. Right. Okay. Jumping off to a different topic a little bit. So maybe I'm way off here, but something I really haven't noticed that much in the Athenian system is corruption. Did the lottery system or any other aspects of their society contribute to this, or am I just totally wrong? Well, I think they were very concerned with the possibility of corruption. So a lot of what the accountability procedures are meant to do is to weed out, you know, or, or sort of maybe prevent, you know, sort of, um, and then weed out any any forms of corruption that might take place. For example, there had been originally the jurors were only selected were selected randomly. But then um, there wasn't a further randomization as to which court they were to sit on, which trial they were to sit on on a given day. And so there were attempts made to bribe jurors. And then that was stamped out by introducing a second layer of randomization, which was to randomize which trial a given juror would be assigned to. And, and they also pioneer using written ballots for some things, particular um, judicial trials, rather than just voting by a show of hands or orally, which were systems, the show of hands is used in the assembly for the most part. Oral voting was used in Sparta for electing officials, for example. And when you have um, a count, then obviously that closes off certain avenues that we might think of as corrupt. Having said that, I don't think they had exactly the same understanding of the public and the private that we do. And even though I've been using the language of public and private, that can sometimes be misleading. So in particular, I think they don't necessarily think that there's anything wrong with, for example, um, using your power to benefit your 
your friends or relations when you're in power or maybe within certain limits, but, or they don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, yourself profiting from a political decision that is genuinely also the right decision for the city. Okay. Um, Then I'd like to circle back around to what we were talking about with lottery versus election earlier. So we have most of the positions in Athens, both elected and via lottery. And since we do focus on a lot of the generals in uh, ancient Athens, I mean, even just prominent men were generals at one time or another, like Sophocles. And so it kind of tends to highlight that election process. But at the same time, of the 1,200 public positions, only 100 of them were done by election. So it seems like there was a much larger reliance on the lottery system. But based on what you said in our emails and things, you seem to indicate that the role of elections were generally undervalued today. I'm curious to hear your take on this. How do these two methods compare? Yeah, so election is used actually not only for the generals, but for all of the military positions and for some of the high financial positions and a kind of handful of other positions as well. So you're right, I think, broadly speaking, about the numbers. And I would never want to say that lottery is not important. I think it is important. It is, again, not unique to Athens. They deploy it very extensively. At the same time, I think it's it's sort of um, intellectual significance or the way that we might sometimes think of adopting it today is sometimes misunderstood. So whether you're chosen by lottery or by election, every official was subjected to what was called a dokimazia, a scrutiny, which tested whether they were a citizen in good standing. So whether they had paid their taxes, whether they honored their father and mother, whether they participated in the city's religious practices whether they were sort of properly enrolled as a citizen in the first place. So whereas often when people think about lottery, they think, oh, it means random cross-section that, that you know, could literally just be anyone. The Athenians put in this check after their use of any procedure of lottery to make sure that they weren't picking someone that they thought was not a citizen in good standing. You know, so, so the meaning of it for them is somewhat different. And I see a lot of the positions that they use lottery for as what we might think of as sort of civil service positions. So, you know, superintending the weights and measures, organizing religious festivals, um, maintaining the roads, you know, things like that. So, whereas, you know, if you think about the military offices and the high financial offices, those require a degree of skill that is, I think, you know, not something that you would necessarily expect just anyone to be able to pick up in the way that maybe for a civil service type position, you know, most people, again, who are citizens in good standing can sort of learn how to do it, you know, competently. It's really, I'm really trying to redress the balance. I think some very influential and important readings of Athenian democracy have really stressed lottery. And I'm trying to say yes, but they did use election for some of their very important positions. And so we need to think about that as well. So, the other thing I noticed about the positions in Athens is that both elected and lottery, they tended to have incredibly short term limits in office compared to our modern times. And so when I first read this, my thought was that I, I kind of want to offer you my opinion and have you critique it. But my first thought was that to compare it to our Supreme Court in the United States, they are appointed for life, so they're insulated from the political climate. But one of the strengths you emphasize in the Athenian system is how aware they were of the danger of leaving one group in charge for too long. So how do you compare these two things? I mean, did the Athenians really want to ensure that they had a rapid change out 
of political positions, so popular opinion was felt more immediately in office, or were they just terrified of having anyone in office for too long? Yeah, I think it's probably more the latter in the sense that one story that kind of Greek authors tell themselves, you know, and tell each other at the time is, well, we used to have kings. And the point about a king is that, again, they don't have term limits on their power either, right? They're in office for life. And then the move away from kings to a to a system that has more um, and different kinds of control of power involves limiting their term. And, and eventually that, that goes to a one year long term limit, which is the case for most offices um, in Athens. Um, the generals had a one year term limit, but could be reelected indefinitely. Most other offices couldn't be reelected or reappointed to the same position, except we think that people must have been able to serve on the council more than once because they we just can't do the math otherwise and see how they filled all those offices of being a member of the council. So the idea, so I think it's really about this idea of not wanting anyone to be able to accumulate too much power, that somebody staying in office for longer sort of accumulates a level of personal authority and power that, you know, starts to look like it approximates a kind of monarchy. Um, and um, even though the Athenians have this sort of strange self-mythology where they have an affection for Theseus, who they remember as somehow both a king and a democrat in some sort of ancient way. But in general, they see their system as, you know, opposed to kings, even though they do preserve the name of king in the position of one of the archons, which is one of the um, important offices. So I think it is about preventing the accumulation of power. And also it's about accountability, because if you do accountability at the end of a term, you're able to hold people accountable much more regularly if the offices turn over every year than you would be if the offices were, you know, were four years or, or longer. Sure, that makes sense. Kind of a constant checkup with whoever's in charge. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. So after looking at how the Athenians thought about justice, I want to move on to how it changed over time and how the role of justice changed in Athens. So the Athenian Empire started out really quite fair. Other Greeks paid them for legitimate protections against the Persians. And then this slowly coalesced into a single empire. Now, it seemed to happen in small steps. And like we've talked about, there's really only been a few limited incidences of atrocities on behalf of Athens. But there does seem to be a trend here. At first, it was wanting to do these things and then holding themselves back. And then they did it because they felt it was necessary. And then they kind of did it out of just arbitrary spite, it would seem, at Milos. As Athens continued to change, this was a big shift. How did they reconcile their self-identity of being a just city while also significantly changing the way that they treated the other people in their empire? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a very important question, and I don't know that any society has ever fully re reconciled its ideas of internal justice with its, its treatment of others externally. I mean, very few societies maybe have been truly consistent on that front. You know, as we said, in some way, the idea of justice was seen by them as what would set up sort of proper, full political community. But by that very token, if you think that your proper, full political community sort of is at its acme within the polis, then, you know, these other polis, these other political societies outside are not part of that same ambit of justice. So, I mean, I'm not defending this. I'm just trying to explain how I think they thought about it. 
you know, having said that, I think that we see in the, in their texts, um, you know, the, the the they are very aware of the paradox and the the tensions and the ethical tensions that this raises. That you know, one can be a a kind of be fundamentally opposed to tyranny at home, which is one of the ways that the democracy also defines its identity. So against kings and against tyrants, but then be acting as a tyranny abroad, as as you say, as the empire developed from a league in which Athens was first among equals to during the Peloponnesian War, Athens, you know, putting extreme pressure and sometimes very destructive military force either against its own allies or against cities that were trying to remain neutral. And so they see that they're acting as um, tyrants abroad. And and I think that is a that is a real tension. I also work on Plato in particular, and it's interesting that one of Plato's proposals in the Republic is that and actually also in other dialogues, is that it might make sense to think of Greeks as a whole. So perhaps Greeks shouldn't be treating their fellow Greeks in this way, treating them tyrannically. Maybe all of the Greeks could be thought of as, in some sense, a a political community, but that would still leave open, you know, how you treat people who aren't Greek. And so, um, you know, now much later, um, we have the development, uh, well, actually not much later, so already from early third century before the Common Era, we have the beginnings of the development of Stoicism. And some Stoic philosophers talk about all of humanity as being along with the gods in a single polis, which encompasses the whole cosmos, the whole universe. That's interesting. So the Greeks really also, you know, eventually come to develop an idea that could be an idea of a kind of as we call it, cosmopolitanism, although even then, for the most part, they're still living in, you know, more defined political communities and, you know, not necessarily living up to that cosmopolitan ethical ideal. But, you know, but I think it is a tension. And, and, and I don't I don't know that, you know, that one can, I, I, I don't know that they would have been fully surprised that there was a tension, but I think they saw that there was a tension. Sure. Okay, that does make sense. And and so it seems like we really run into just an inherent problem here that the protections of a particular government are bound around a particular group, in this case, the Athenian people, and they aren't necessarily intended to protect others, such as the rest of the people in the empire. And so are you saying then that later on, one of the ways that the Greeks dealt with this was to ensure that there would be no other in that system? They were trying to eliminate, at least in theory with Plato and Aristotle, um, the them versus us mentality by proposing that and the Stoics? Well, again, I, I think one has to be careful about this. I mean, Plato proposes it in some way. It's not clear how seriously we're to take it, but he talks about it that all the Greeks should think that we are an us. So that's, you might think that's an improvement, but it's still a them and us, you know. And the Stoic theory is really theory. It gets picked up in the Roman Empire. You get some Greek orators and 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 thinkers saying, oh, look, the Roman Empire is an expression of the universality of, you know, sort of human nature and politics. But that's rhetoric really more than you know, kind of anything real. Of course, Rome also has an inside and an outside. So I don't mean to say that that leads to real political change, but it is interesting that at least at a theoretical level, at least some philosophers, you know, recognize that you could try to have a an idea of politics that wouldn't have an outside among at least humans and gods. You know, that still, we might think, leaves other sentient creatures outside, you know, um, as because they draw the line at reason. So it's very, very difficult, you know, to have a community which is truly, genuinely inclusive. And, you know, I don't think that we can say that we've achieved that today either. 
Oh, certainly. Yeah, I would say there's still the, yeah, it, it seems like there's still the same tension that we have in our current system. Yeah, exactly. Kind of related to this, then, a trend that's pointed out very early in the book, and Hesiod would relate to very closely, is the inverse relationship between hubris and justice. This seems particularly relevant here to our story as the Athenian Empire grew. Can you explain what you mean by that? I think Hesiod does a pretty good job of laying it out, but I'd like to hear your take on it. Um, well, the thought is that what leads people to violate um, obligations of justice um, is a kind of sense of hubris or, or, or in a way, hubris is anti-justice. It's treating people arrogantly and overriding their just claims. Um, and so Hesiod's own uh, poetry is in part spurred by a, uh, his embitterment towards his brother, whom he holds accountable for sort of usurping the family inheritance. Um, and so he sees that as a kind of paradigm of the kind of unjust behavior. And one way we can think of that as hubris. I do want to say that, you know, because I said that debt slavery had been abolished under Solon, but I do want to, of course, acknowledge that when we talk about justice more generally at the time of um, the Athenians and the classical Greeks, of course, we need to say that they go on enslaving people and, you know, depriving them of, of freedom and of being fully, of being included in, a, in, in the protections of a legal community. It's not that slavery itself is not present in this period. And that's, of course, a, you know, a, a, a blot on um, the, any idea of justice that most Greek theorists saw, including Plato and Aristotle, saw justice as in, compatible with the maintenance of, of slavery. And we need to take that into account. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess still in the theme of this um, inclusion versus exclusion, one of my favorite quotes in the book that you have is that liberty as a constitutional value at home too often turns into despotism abroad. What it seems like is that we have examples of this with both Athens and Sparta when they would go in and change out someone else's government. That was a really obvious example of it. But if this seems to be the trend over time, does this mean that we should be willing to give up some of our own liberties in order to allow a greater level of liberty abroad? That's an interesting question. I don't know that we have to think of that as a trade-off. I mean, I don't know if the implication of that trend over time is that there's a real trade-off or that people just think that there's a trade-off, you know, or want to believe that there's a trade-off. I mean, you know, you, you could say that yeah, so actually that's a really interesting question and I but I, I would just want to say I don't think that's necessarily the implication. You could think that we would have more meaningful liberty at home if we were treating people abroad justly as well. You know, I think that would be another way of thinking about it. Sure, to have a mutually fair system instead of just trying to control the other side. Yeah. To gain exactly. all the liberty for yourself. Exactly. Okay, that makes sense. Um just in closing here, I just have two final questions for you. Uh, since you're actually the first guest to the show, I think we'll probably be using these to close out future interviews as well. But the majority of your work focuses around Greece, and then you also have a good bit of work on Rome as well. But if you had to pick another time and place to focus on, what would it be? Do you have any other kind of second tier interest there? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, I am really fascinated in a kind of amateur way with the uh, period of the English Civil War, so the 17th century. I think that you know, many of the radical ideas about democracy and liberty that we tend to associate with the American Revolution or the French Revolution really crystallize in a in a form that actually for some of them draws on ancient Greek and Roman models. Um, but, 
you know, sort of are expressed in a modern context there in a really fascinating way. So that would at least be one one area that I would choose. Okay. Um, is there any particular scene in ancient Greece, particularly the fifth century or a little later when Plato and Aristotle came, that's really stuck with you, but you think is generally overlooked today? Can you give us an example of what we might be missing? Oh, um, okay. That's an interesting question. Um, one thing that I wish we knew more about, in a sense, are the reforms of Ephialtes. So it seems that he's a politician who's alive at about the same time as Pericles. And he seems to have put forward, you know, an important set of reforms that helped to democratize the society further, but we just don't know enough about exactly what they were or who he was. And so that's something that I really wish that we could know more about. Yes, it's frustrating what Thucydides chooses and others choose to leave out. Yeah. Okay, well, Melissa Lane, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Rob. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Lane for joining us. If you are interested in learning more about Greece now that the show is over, please consider picking up a copy of The Birth of Politics. It is thought-provoking, but also avoids being too dense or unapproachable, and I think Dr. Lane does an excellent job of tying all the ideas of the book together in the end. And it also is unique in that it makes direct ties with our thinking today, and is a showcase for answering that question that always seems to come up with history, why does history matter? I'll have a link to the book in the show notes, of course, but you can find it really anywhere books are sold. Now, I hope you have enjoyed our conversation, and we'll have the final epilogue to the season next week. And, as always, thank you for listening.